Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, as we wrap up our 22-week series in this spectacular book. So, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul wants to warn the church that though we have been redeemed by God, uh, rescued from the power and penalty of sin through the sacrifice of Jesus, reconciled to God and to one another through the power of the gospel, that it is not smooth sailing from here to heaven. Wish it was, but it's not. Uh, Instead, there is a target on the back of the church and on the back of every single Christian. Because God's plan for the church is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The schemes of the devil had plunged man into sin, had created divisions between God and man and man and fellow man and put the cosmos under the curse of death. But what the devil tried to rip asunder in the universe is now through the wisdom of God being turned backwards. It's being healed. It's being restored through the gospel. The triumph of Christ on the cross crushed the serpent's head, breaking the power of sin and death. And so everyone who trusts in Christ experiences reconciliation with God and reconciliation with other believers. And so every faithful gospel church, including Harbin's church, exists to communicate to the devil the victory of Christ over the powers. That's what Ephesians 3.10 is all about. And Satan hates that because the last thing that he wants is for God to look wise. And so his aim is to weaken the church and lead us into disunity and anger and bitterness and rival factions and racial tensions and lovelessness and power plays and hostility and angry division over COVID-19 and tolerance over sin and broken marriages and broken homes and a lot more. All of those things and more like it communicate something different than our reconciliation to God and to one another. And so when that happens, And when the church falls into those kinds of things, the church then unwittingly is playing right into Satan's hand and is communicating that God actually isn't wise, that the gospel isn't true, and it has no power at all. And so then we join the devil in mocking God. So how we at Harbin's church live out our calling is huge, absolutely huge. The stakes are way bigger than what most churches realize. Church is, is not just about just kind of having a little feel-good time on, on Sunday and you're seeing your friends and, and having a few activities for my kids. Stakes are way, way bigger than that. Our personal holiness and our relationships with one another in this church actually have cosmic implications, if that verse is true. Cosmic implications. And therefore, we've got to act accordingly and suit up for battle. Because while our enemy is strong and while our enemy is powerful, we are not left without defenses. Now, last week, as we began to to take a look at the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, we discussed the first two pieces of that armor, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. And if you want to hear a breakdown of those two pieces of the armor, you can go back online, listen to last week's sermon, and we spent a lot of time talking about that. But 
we're going to move on now because God has given us more equipment to ensure that we can stand firm against Satan's schemes and win. So please stand with me now one more time out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. We stand at Harbin's Church as a way of just reminding us that what we're about to read is not fiction, it's not just the opinion of a, of a person, but it's somebody that we really need to listen to and really need to pay attention to. It's the word of God, not the word of man. We're in Ephesians chapter six, and we're gonna start at verse 10 just to get the whole context here. We're gonna back up a little bit and read on down through the end of the chapter. God's word says, finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know that how I am and what I'm doing, Tychius, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your help this morning. Preaching is a weighty thing. I can't do this in the power of the flesh. So help me, Father, by your Spirit. And Help the congregation this morning to have open ears to hear your word, and may we be sanctified and encouraged and blessed and, where need be, convicted by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So after fastening on the the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, Paul now reminds us to not forget another piece piece of equipment that's absolutely critical, and it's our shoes. Can't, can't, forget your, can't forget your shoes. The shoes of the gospel, that, that's the next piece of armor that Paul wants to bring our attention to. He says in verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. As the ancient soldier marched on rough, hot roads and trampled over thorns and waded through stream beds of sharp rocks, his feet needed a whole lot of protection. If your feet are blistered or cut or swollen, you can't effectively fight, and you may not even be able to stand up. But the Romans, of course, as always, were very innovative in warfare, and they developed very sturdy shoes that not only protected their feet, but also had a spike protruding from the bottom to aid in their footing. That was absolutely essential equipment because one slip in battle could mean death. 
the Romans were known to surprise uh, enemies because they were able to go so fast over terrain because of their, of their shoes. And they would arrive a couple days earlier than the other army thought. Oh, we've got time to prepare. They're, gonna, they're not going to be here for a while. Uh-oh, here they are right now. It was all about the shoes. And the Christian's footwear in our battle with Satan, Paul says, is the gospel of peace. Now, what does that mean? Some commentators think that what Paul means is that the gospel brings the believer peace and security and confidence in spiritual warfare. In this sense, the, the shoes are defensive equipment that's helping us to, to stand and not be, not be knocked down. Could be the case. And, and while I certainly believe that a believer's grounding in the gospel provides power and protection from the devil in the battle, I don't think that's quite what Paul is getting at here. It helps us to remember that Paul, and we talked about this last week, Paul is not drawing his uh, imagery primarily from the Roman soldier, but is drawing it directly from the Old Testament. Last week we saw that the, the belt and the breastplate were taken from images of God as the divine warrior in Isaiah chapter 11 and Isaiah uh, 59. And here Paul continues to draw from Isaiah, and this time it is Isaiah 52, where the prophet writes, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So Isaiah here is evoking the image of a messenger, a messenger who's bounding over the mountains of Judea, delivering a message of good news, a message that the forces of God have won, the enemy has been overthrown. Uh, Isaiah says this man is delivering good news and publishing salvation, saying, your God reigns. Now, Paul in Ephesians 6 isn't directly quoting Isaiah verbatim, but there are clear parallels between Isaiah 52 and Ephesians 6.15, aren't there? Maybe you've noticed that. Both mention feet, both mention good news, both mention peace. But it's not just Ephesians 6 where Paul connects Isaiah 52 with the gospel of peace. In Romans 10, we have an even clearer connection. Uh, there he not only uh, alludes to Isaiah 52, but he directly quotes it, where he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So, what, what are the shoes that, that Paul says the Christian soldier is to wear for help in spiritual warfare? Well, when you consider how Paul uses, uh, how Paul both in Ephesians 6 and in Romans 10 uses Isaiah 52, he, he's not so much thinking about the gospel in the sense of it giving you peace, although it certainly does, right? Instead, Paul is, is, is thinking of the gospel in the sense of spreading that peace, spreading that good news, that spreading that gospel of peace to others, to, to publishing salvation, to use the words of Isaiah. In other words, he's talking about the work of evangelism. And so, gospel work, the gospel work of the church is not a defensive mover, it's instead an aggressive invasion into this dark world, bringing light and good news to those trapped in darkness and in bondage to the devil. 
The preaching of the gospel is, to use the words of Isaiah, publishing peace. Uh, The word peace in in Hebrew is that classic word shalom. Uh, It carries the idea of of all being well between you and God and and between you and others. It's a spiritual wholeness. And of course, that's what the gospel brings, right? A reconciliation with God and with others. That's what we've been talking about all throughout Ephesians. And Ephesians 2.17 says that Jesus preached peace. He preached peace to you who were far off. Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. So Jesus actually is the fulfillment of the joyful messenger of Isaiah 52. And we, as Jesus' people, are called to put on gospel shoes and follow in his footsteps, literally, as, as, our, as our feet take the good news to the ends of the earth, as we publish peace. And so gospel preaching, Paul says, is one of the main pieces of equipment the church has in fighting the devil in spiritual warfare. Now, this is critical. This is really, really important because there are no parts of God's armor that are optional. If you've got your shield and you've got your breastplate and you've got your helmet and you've got your sword on and you run out into the battlefield in your bare feet, what's going to happen? You're not going to make it. Harbin's Church, I want us to, to feel the weight of this this morning. We can do a lot of things right. We can have right doctrine. We can have faith. We can live a righteous life. But if we are not a gospel-preaching people and, 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 and we neglect a part of God's armor, then we put ourselves in spiritual danger against the attacks of the devil. There's no such thing as a, as, a, as a strong, thriving, mature, powerful church that at the same time isn't engaged in gospel work. And engaging in, in gospel work doesn't just mean, you know, uh, throwing some, some money at Peter to, to preach at Planned Parenthood. It, it's, it's more than that. Uh, gospel preaching isn't just the responsibility of a couple of guys that we pay to do it. It's something that you need to be engaged in as well. Now, I know, that, I know that personally when I'm engaged in evangelism, I experience great personal benefits. It really strengthens my prayer life, that's for sure, because few things make me feel my need for God more than when I'm evangelizing a lost person, and I'm stumbling over my words, and, and, and I'm, I'm just, I become well acquainted with my lack of wisdom and eloquence as I'm, I'm saying gospel things, but I'm also saying stupid things. <laughs> the gospel thing is from God, the stupid thing is all Deemer. And I, and I need help. Evangelism often drives me back to the, to the Word of God as I get hard questions from unbelievers. And I'm like, I don't know, that's a good question. Let me get back to you on that. And so then my own understanding of the Bible is strengthened. Evangelism increases my, my zeal for righteous living as I know that my lifestyle must complement my words lest I cause confusion and become a stumbling block to others. And so I'm motivated to walk with Jesus as closely as possible, making sure that I'm practicing what I'm preaching. If you're struggling in your walk with the Lord, if you feel like you're getting beat up by the devil in spiritual warfare, if if you're stuck in besetting sins, if you're not growing in Christ, could it be that part of the solution is that you aren't wearing your shoes? And therefore, there's no way that you can stand firm, let alone move forward in your faith? Now, now some folks say, "Well, well, once I'm more mature and strong in the Lord, then I'll evangelize. You ever said that before? Uh, w- once I grow more, then I'll, then I'll preach the gospel. 
But friend, Paul's showing us here that you don't wait to grow more and then evangelize. You put on your gospel shoes, evangelize, and then you'll grow more. Uh, Then you'll be better equipped to withstand the attacks of Satan and, and conquer sin in your life. Brothers and sisters, Harbin's church will not successfully withstand the onslaught of the powers by merely being quiet and righteous. We must also be about the business of gospel proclamation, of bringing good news of happiness. Uh, we, We must be about the business of announcing to people the triumph of Christ over the powers, and publishing peace, and proclaiming to the nations that our God reigns. So are your shoes on? Or maybe they need to be tightened a little bit more. I think mine do after reading this passage and studying it. The next piece of equipment is the shield of faith. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. In the ancient world, armies would often attach bags filled with pitch uh, to the arrows, and then they would light those bags on fire. And, and then they would let loose a rain of flaming darts onto the enemy. It was a deadly assault, a feared assault. Could ignite your clothing, wooden shields, could ignite people. Uh, these flaming darts were a fearsome attack, but again, the Romans, being as smart as they were, and great warriors that they were, and awesome with technology, they found a way to fight back. They they, they, made a, they made a large, full-body, rectangular shield that a soldier could take cover behind. But it wasn't just that. They, they wrapped these shields with thick skins that were soaked in water. And when the flaming darts would stick into the shield, they would be extinguished. And these shields were absolutely indispensable to the Romans in warfare. You could be well-equipped, and you could be armed to the teeth, but if you, if you didn't have protection from those arrows, you'd die even before you reached the enemy. And Paul says that for the Christian warrior, our shield is faith. It's trust in God. Now, if the shield is trust, then the flaming darts are those attacks from Satan that seek to undermine our trust in God. And if that's true, then it's impossible to be a victorious Christian on the battlefield without your shield. In the uh, 1600s, the Puritan pastor Walter Marshall had a deep, ongoing struggle against habitual sins, besetting sins. Yes, he was a pastor, and he struggled with these things just like you do. And deeply discouraged, he visited fellow Puritan Thomas Goodwin, and he confessed all of his sins to him. And Goodwin responded by saying, brother, you've left off the worst of all sins. You didn't confess the sin of unbelief. That revelation changed Marshall's life as he began to realize that at the root of all sins was a failure to trust Christ. And this really is at the root of all the devil's attacks against God's people. Satan wants to shake our faith and cause us to waver and doubt God's protection and His provision and His promises. Romans 14 says that whatever is not of faith is sin. And so the flaming darts are anything that might cause us to sin. And Satan has been in the business of shooting flaming darts from the very beginning. In fact, the the very first temptation in the Garden of Eden was a big flaming arrow of doubt aimed right at Eve's heart. Has God really said that, Eve? Is is He really giving you what you need by cutting you off from that one tree? 
doesn't seem fair. One of the devil's most effective schemes is to, is to tempt you to question the sufficiency of God for everything in your life. Here are some, here are some examples of, of the flaming arrows that, that he, he will fire your way and see if any of these sound familiar. God's given up on you. You can't count on God in this situation. Where's God when you've got all these bills to pay and you can't even make ends meet? It's all over. You sin one too many times, and because of that, God is through with you, and you are on your own. You can't preach the gospel to these people. You aren't eloquent. No one's going to listen to you. She treats you better than your wife. Maybe, she'll, maybe, maybe this other woman will give you the happiness that you crave. You're trying to follow God? How's that working out for you? Your life is tougher now than it was before you became a Christian. God doesn't even love you. Some of you have heard those things before. Some of you may be hearing some of those things right now. And that's just a sampling of, of the fiery arrows that the devil will shoot at you to knock you down. And there's many more because he has a nearly limitless quiver. And you're being shot at every day. In, in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is confronted by the evil fiend Apollyon. And it wasn't just an arrow here or there, but it was a, a hailstorm of deadly darts raining down on him. Friends, that's the normal Christian life. That's spiritual warfare. And without the shield of faith, you're going to be flat on your back because all sin begins with doubting something about God, about His sufficiency, about His promises. Sometimes that little flash of doubt is just a small spark, and if you don't deal with that doubt quickly... If you don't extinguish that flaming arrow by exercising faith, you probably have about five seconds to do it once it enters your head. If you don't do that, that spark will grow into a flame that will burn and spread like wildfire until you are consumed. So if the flaming darts are those things that cause you to waver, then the way to wield the shield is to ground yourself in the promises of God promises that bolster your faith. Learn them and memorize them. It's one, one of the reasons we do these fighter verses every week, just to encourage you. You don't have to use the fighter verse memory program. You can use your own, or you can memorize whatever you want in the Bible, but that's, that's one resource to help you there. Um, but you, you've got to get the Word deep into your heart. Uh, and, and so, when the devil tries to scare you, because you don't know how you're going to provide for your family, you raise the shield of Philippians 4.19 that says, my God will supply your every need according to his riches and glory. Amen. If your heart is broken and you feel alone and you're tempted to think that God doesn't care and that he's abandoned you, take refuge behind the shield of Psalm 34.18 that promises you that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. If you're tempted to succumb to the pleasures of sin, as if that would really satisfy what you need, then you hoist the shield of Psalm 16 that says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And if you feel like you've blown it one too many times and you think that God is through with you for sure, you shove the shield of Philippians 1.6 in the devil's face 
which says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. But you can't even use the shield of faith unless you know the reasons why you can have faith, unless you know the promises of God. Are you, are you learning about what God says about reality, about himself, about his character, about his sufficiency? Are you getting those things deep into your heart? Because many Christians are not. And so, and so then therefore many Christians lie wounded on the battlefield, pierced in many places because they had no shield to deflect the flaming arrows. But for those who remember the shield of faith and learn how to use it well, these Christians can do supernatural deeds on the battlefield. You say, Demer, what, what do you mean by that? Well, read Hebrews 11. It's all about faith. It's all about, about people who use the shield of faith and use it well. It's about the amazing exploits of those who, who wield it on the spiritual battlefield. My favorite example in Romans chapter, or Hebrews chapter 11 is, is talks about Moses. Uh, in Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So think about this. Moses was a prince of Egypt. At his fingertips were all of the delights, all of the wealth, all of the entertainment, all the power, all the accolades, all the popularity and prestige, all of the sinful, uh, sensual pleasures. Brothers and sisters, that seems like a temptation almost impossible to turn down. So how did he do it? Well, Hebrews goes on to say, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What's the point? He had faith. And he knew that everything that could be had in God was superior to everything that could be had in the world. And he really believed it. And he fought through the satanic temptation to have a little now so that he could have something greater and better and more abundant later. So soldier, where's your shield? Are you using it? You might be surprised at the exploits God will enable you to do once you have it and wield it well. Next piece of equipment, the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Verse 17, he says, take the helmet of salvation. The Romans, the Romans helmet made, uh, was made of leather or brass or, or sometimes bronze or iron. Uh, and the helmets featured a band to protect the forehead and plates for the cheeks and really left a little of the head exposed to danger. So you could be armored up everywhere else, but if your head is exposed, you're not going to last long. One shot to the head, and it's all over. That, and that arrow doesn't even have to be flaming. You, you're, you're done. So as we go out to battle against the devil, don't forget to take the helmet with you. You're, you're going to need it. Now, when Paul tells you to take the helmet of salvation, he's not saying get saved. Paul's writing to people who are already saved. So what does he mean? I think one clue we have is in 1 Thessalonians 5, where Paul uses this exact same imagery, but he puts a little twist on it. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul's telling his readers about the coming day of the Lord. 
a time where the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So judgment and destruction is coming upon those who do not believe, those who are enemies of God. But Paul then turns to believers and says, but you do not have to fear that day. Paul then goes on to tell us why. He says in verse 5, for you are all children of light, children of the day, having put on for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's telling you there that no matter what happens, you don't need to be afraid. While those who reject the Lord Jesus do not have a future hope, you do. That's the point. Uh, The day that will be a day of great fear and terror and destruction for some will be for you a day of inheritance. You have a future hope to look forward to, and so no cause for fear. No matter what happens, no matter what comes against us, no matter what the wicked powers and principalities throw at us, even if it is a painful, crushing blow to the head, we will not ultimately be destroyed. We're not destined for destruction, but for salvation. And that's why Paul calls it in Thessalonians a helmet of the hope of salvation, a hope that includes, yes, our present salvation, but also a hope of consummated salvation, uh, which we will experience in the next age, where there will be no more tears, no death, no sorrow, resurrection from the dead, and an inheritance which includes the whole cosmos. And as that's It's that hope that gives us a sense of confidence and peace and security and and it enables us to stand firm and press on and persevere. There are people in prison all over the world because they follow Jesus. Some have lost friends, some have lost family, some have lost all their earthly possessions for Christ. Some may even be being killed right now as you are sitting here comfortably in church this morning. What is it that keeps them going? What, what is it that keeps them standing firm? What is it that keeps them from renouncing Christ and just ending their pain? It's the, it's the hope and the confident assurance of something better to come. Paul puts it this way in, in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul's, Paul is looking beyond what he's enduring now to something coming to him later on. And the weight of all of the affliction and all of the pain that he and all believers have to deal with in a fallen world, the weight of that, Paul says, seems light, is light, compared to the heavy, overwhelming, eternal weight of glory that is coming to us. And oh, that the Lord would grant us Paul's eternal perspective. Uh, that, that we may have the helmet of the hope of salvation so securely in place that it doesn't matter what the devil throws at us as we can, uh, uh, we'll continue to stand firm. Uh, we won't stumble because we're so eagerly and joyfully awaiting something absolutely incredible that we'll inherit in just a few short years. That is the hope that keeps the believer fighting and pressing on because we know that even the devil's hardest blows will never knock us down permanently. If you're a Christian struggling with assurance of salvation, it's going to cripple you on the battlefield. When you lack assurance of salvation, it saps your enthusiasm to live for God because you're not even sure if God is for you. 
Some of you are or have dealt with, with assurance issues, genuine Christians, and, and you know what I'm talking about here. And typically, Christians who struggle with assurance of salvation have forgotten where their hope ultimately lies. They keep looking inwardly to themselves and, and to their performance uh, for the hope of salvation. And that's a dead end, because you'll never perform well enough to save yourself. And so, and so the answer then is to, is to not navel gaze and look at yourself, but look up and look to the cross and, and remember what you've forgotten, that Jesus is the Savior and not you. Indeed, as with all the other pieces of armor, Paul again draws his imagery from King Messiah in Isaiah chapter 59, where the Lord put on a helmet of salvation on his head. Some of y'all didn't know that so much of the armor of God was in the Old Testament. And these, these past couple of weeks have been a revelation for you. It's pretty cool. I love connecting the, the dots between the old and the new. It is Christ that we find the hope for salvation and therefore the hope to keep fighting. All right, next piece of equipment. Now, some of you are waiting for this one, and it's the sword, the sword of the, of the Spirit. I like, you know, medieval movies and, you know, Lord of the Rings type stuff and, you know, having the big old sword and all those sorts of things. So I like this. I like this imagery. Uh, verse 17, he says, in the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, now, again, because of the kind of stories I like, when I'm thinking of swords, I'm thinking of this big, huge, you know, two-handed thing. And, and you know, you, you, you can't even hold a shield or anything else because every, every ounce of your strength is holding that sword. That's not what Paul has in mind here. Uh, the, the, the Roman short sword was sharp and light, and it was designed for close quarters and, and, and hand-to-hand combat. And the Christian sword is the Word of God, the Bible. All of y'all have swords right now, either, either here or, or on your phone. It's, it's your sword. And there's absolutely no point going into battle if you don't have your sword. You, you, you can't defeat the devil without the Word of God. You can have all the protection and armor you want, but if you have no offensive weapon, you'll never beat your enemy. And so how do, we, how do we effectively wield our sword in battle? Well, we can learn from the master swordsman, Jesus Christ. Remember in Luke 4, Jesus was being tempted by the devil, and, and he, was, he was fasting, and he was relying on the Lord to provide for him, and the devil slithers up to him and says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. In other words, Satan is attempting to cast doubt on Jesus' identity as, 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 as a son of a good father who will provide for him. It's essentially the same temptation that Adam and Eve received in the garden. And, and, and how does Jesus answer him? He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus counters the attack of the devil by quoting the Bible. He says, it is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. He stands on the word of God, and that's what Adam should have done. That's what Adam should have done in the very beginning. When the the serpent tempted Eve to eat from the forbidden tree, Adam should have stepped in and said, serpent, this is what the Lord said, period, end of discussion. And and Jesus, of course, in that temptation, doesn't just quote any word of God. He quotes a word that underscores the supremacy of the word, uh, that we need it more than bread. 
that our lives are bound up in the Word of God. And if you keep reading Luke 4, the devil tempts him again, and Jesus again counters, uh, counterattacks by quoting Scripture. And, and then during the third temptation, Satan does something very interesting. He, he takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you. Did you see what Satan did there? How does he go after Jesus? And that, that third temptation, he uses the Bible. He says, okay, Jesus, you want to talk Bible? I know Bible. You, you want to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God? Well, here's the word of God. And then Satan quotes the Bible to Jesus. And so we learn a very important lesson in swordplay against Satan. It's not enough to be able to quote Bible verses. Just kind of spewing them out. You're not even thinking about it. If you don't know what those verses mean in their context, because Satan was taking a Bible verse and taking it out of context, if you don't know what the Bible verses you're, you're learning mean in their context, Satan can trick you and lead you into sin through a false interpretation of Scripture. Some of the most heinous sins ever committed have been justified by twisting Scripture, by people pointing at their Bibles. Jesus, of course, knew the Bible inside and out and didn't fall for it, and he, and he struck back with the sword of the Spirit, and he said, it is written, you must not tempt the Lord your God. And after that, the devil had finished every temptation and departed from him. The devil departed. The devil left. Why? Because he could not withstand the accurate and skillful use of the sword of the Spirit in the hands of a master swordsman. If we're going to have any hope of standing firm in spiritual warfare, we have got to be people of the book got to be people of the book. It's not an option. We've got to get into the Word of God and get the Word of God into us. We've got to learn it, study it, memorize it, understand it, know how to apply it, and then wield it aggressively during times of temptation. For the weapons of our warfare, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The sword of the Spirit is the weapon that is powerful enough to destroy those strongholds, those lying satanic arguments that come through temptations. So, so the sword is both a defensive and an offensive weapon. So whenever a satanic lie enters your mind, deflect it and destroy it with the sword of the Spirit. That's, that's often the advice that, that Dana and I give, give, give our kids if they're, if they're struggling with something and, or they're, they're struggling their attitude about something or just thinking thoughts that are not true. And we always remind them, the Bible says, think on things that are true. Is that, is that true? No. Well, then think on things that are true. Think according to the Word of God. Now, most people think about, when they think about spiritual warfare, they, they, they stop with the armor of God and they stop with the sword of the Spirit and, okay, we're done. But there, there's another critical thing that, that we need that guarantees victory, and it's the forgotten weapon, which is prayer. The forgotten weapon, prayer. That's my final observation on this text. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. It says, be praying at all times. Elsewhere, Paul says, pray without ceasing. Prayer is to be a part of the fabric of our daily lives. And oh, how so many of us struggle with prayer. Am I the only one that struggles with prayer? Okay, there's a couple people. Everyone else has got it, I guess, but I'm still working on it. Still working on it. 
It's a, it's a, it's a struggle. Uh, often prayer is the last thing that comes to our mind. Uh, when we've exhausted our own wisdom, our own resources, our own strength, when we have nothing else left, then maybe we pray. And we use prayer as a last resort. And if you're living that way, you've already lost the battle. You've already lost. Have we forgotten the very first thing Paul said to us in this passage? In verse 10, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Before Paul gets to any of the armor, he tells us to be strong in the Lord, not in ourselves. There's no way that you can take on a fallen angel by yourself. And yet when we rush into battle, into our day, prayerless because we're too busy, and we rush off facing the dragon in our own strength, we fall flat on our face every time. I'm speaking from personal experience. But the book of James tells us that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That means if you don't pray, you don't have that great power that James is talking about. But as you pray, don't just pray for yourself. Paul says in verse 18, make supplication for all the saints. Spiritual warfare is not a personal individual thing, and sometimes I fear we make it that way. Again, I've talked about this before, just our individualistic, it's an American way of thinking. Uh, everything, is, everything is privatized, including our faith, and that's so foreign to the New Testament. The New Testament is not written to individuals, it's written to a people, a group, local congregations. Uh, Paul's writing here in Ephesians uh, to a church that is not fighting separate personal battles, but a church that is standing firm together and fighting, fighting together, side by side, back to back, against the powers and principalities. We will lose the battle if we're divided and scattered and not supporting one another in prayer. So maybe you are praying for yourself, and, and you do a pretty good job at that. But are you praying for other members of this church? And I know I, I, I keep talking about, I keep coming back to this. I feel like every, I don't know, few weeks, every few sermons, I, I keep coming back to prayer and the necessity of praying for other people in this congregation. All, all members should have a copy of our membership directory. And if you don't, we can get you set up with one. So let us know. It, one of the most important things you can do to strengthen this church, if you want this church to be strong, pray for it. If you think our church is weak in, in, in various areas, and by the way, we are. If you think your pastor is weak in certain areas, and by the way, he is. Pray for the church. Pray for your pastor. Pray for the members. And I, by the way, I'm so encouraged when, when members of the church tell me that they are praying for me. I love that. But I also love it when I hear about people in the church praying for other members of the church. I, just, I don't want to just be the only one that's benefiting, benefiting from y'all's prayers. Let's all be praying for one another. Take that church directory. Pick a few people for your prayer time and then pray for a few of those people every day. Our church will not stand firm against the schemes of Satan if we aren't engaged in mutual prayer. It's got to happen. Paul knows the value of prayer support because he writes in verse 19, pray also for me. Isn't that something? This is the awesome apostle, the great apostle Paul. You know, he's worked miracles, he's cast out demons, he's, you know, he's writing the Bible, <laughs> he's a pretty good resume there. 
But even he needs prayer. Even he knows that unless he is undergirded by God's help, he's not gonna be faithful. He's not gonna have those gospel shoes firmly strapped on and be on mission. Paul says, pray that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly. By the way, I love it. He's, a, he's in prison, but, but he still wants to, wants to preach. As, as long as there's people around you, you know, there's opportunities for evangelism. John Piper likens prayer to a wartime walkie-talkie. It's the link between active soldiers and their command headquarters with its unlimited firepower and air coverage and strategic wisdom. In prayer, we have immediate access to our general and his resources. Listen to what Piper says here. He says, one of the reasons we feel so weak in our prayer lives is that we have tried to make a domestic intercom out of a wartime walkie-talkie. Prayer is not designed as an intercom between us and God to serve the domestic comforts of the saints. It's designed as a walkie-talkie for spiritual battlefields. Prayer exists for advancing the mission, not for calling the butler to turn up the thermostat. God wants our prayers to relate to the mission of your life, that his name be glorified, and that people live for fruitful ministry. Ultimately, we've got to remember that we don't battle on our own. The fate of the cosmos doesn't rest on our shoulders, but is instead summed up in one man, Jesus Christ. We can't read and understand Ephesians 6 properly without remembering Ephesians 1, where we began this journey. Paul has already told us where history is headed. Ephesians 1.10 reveals that God's plan from the very beginning has been to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. The cosmos has been torn apart due to satanic sin and man's rebellion against God. And so the reason that we have war and pain and riots on the street and diseases and earthquakes and marital infidelity and pride and broken relationships and racial tension and drug abuse and divided churches and more, the reason we have those things is due to the fact that we live in a fallen and broken world filled with people like us who deserve nothing but God's wrath. And God could have left us in that state, and yet God loves sinners, and he loves his own glory. And the book of Isaiah, which is on Paul's mind as he writes Ephesians, obviously, the book of Isaiah describes a world where things have broken down, where there is no justice, and where there is no man who is reliable, no man who's trustworthy. All have fallen away, and there are no heroes to save. And Isaiah 59 says, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And Isaiah 11 tells us that righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. There was no man to save. There was no man to intercede. And therefore, God became a man. He did it. Jesus Christ, the divine warrior king, put on his armor, strapped on his sword, and came to be that hero that we so desperately need. He wrestled with the enemy who is not flesh and blood. And on the cross, 
overthrew the devil. Through his death and resurrection, Christ emerged from the war victorious. So now all who believe in Jesus can, with Jesus, conquer Satan and sin and even the grave as they're changed and transformed and united to Christ and to one another. And all who don't believe will will one day in defeat acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And the age will come where, uh, where the universe will once again be made a paradise where every tear is dried and every disease is healed and relationships are made perfect and a flood of joy will be unleashed that will never end. This is our general. This is our king. And this is the reward he gives to all who fight with him. And, and this is why I can't think of a better place to end our series in Ephesians than by coming full circle to the beginning of the book where Paul in chapter 1, in contemplating all of the great things that we have learned in Ephesians these past few months, he cannot help but burst forth in praise saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In him, we have redemption through his blood, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for 22 weeks and in the incredible book of Ephesians. And Father, I pray that the things that we have learned over the past few months would sink deep into our hearts, that we were once lost and outside of the family of God, spiritual orphans in bondage to sin, in bondage to to the devil, following after our own way and rejecting you, being spiritually dead. But God, you, God, being rich in mercy, you through Christ have raised us up and have seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. You've saved us. You have united us with yourself, and you've also brought reconciliation between believers and everything that Sin has corrupted, is being turned backwards, and history is marching in one direction where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you so much for saving us. Father, I pray that you would help Harbin's Community Baptist Church to live out the truths of Ephesians, of the book of Ephesians, that if these things are true, if the reconciliation between us and you and, and us and, and, and other believers has truly come, then may it be plain to a watching world in how we as a church live with one another, how we treat one another. The, the world out there seems like it is ripped asunder and falling apart, but Father, let there be strength and let there be unity and let there be love in here so that the world may know that we are your disciples so that the world may know that Jesus is from God and so that we may put on display the wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
Help us to be faithful. Help us to to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.